Blessed Heavenly Father, Conquering Jehovah Jireh, Judge Emmanuel, the author and perfecter, we beseech thee for our journey mercies in pouring out thy bountiful sustenance, wherefore anointing us with appropriation to the end of the ages. Thy servants vicariously enjoin with the sovereignty in this lectionary for sanctification and propitiation. And it is my earnest prayer that I have sufficiently impressed thee, O God, in the ears of all those who have listened today and are... Okay, if you're not peeking already, <laughs> you should be. You should totally be peeking by now. You all look so confused right now. I wanted to do that because every Sunday before I pray, I say, let's pray, and then I pray, and, and I say something like, Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And that's from a psalm that King David wrote. And I thought I'd change things up a bit because we've been talking about prayer for several weeks. And I'm wondering if you know what prayer is. I'm wondering if any of us know what prayer is. Because I grew up in a church where prayers like that were spoken by people like you and me. Some churches make a competition out of prayer, don't they? In fact, there was a National Day of Prayer a few years ago. Uh, We just had it this past week, and I try not to pray much at that because I don't want to get into a competition with other people like this one year. There we the National Day of Prayer here in Ray, and it was a prayer-a-thon. It was a prayer competition. It was a who-could-pray-the-best-prayer kind of a prayer meeting. You been to one of those? <laughs> Lots of yeses. Aren't those irritating? I mean, if you know what prayer really is about, that it can be really irritating when somebody is there just kind of trying to outpray the person or the other people around them. And sometimes, you know, like somebody would say something really awesome and then somebody else would like trumpet and then the person that prayed earlier, they'd get back up and they were probably saving it for next year, but they still (laughs) use that one because they got to be better than the other person. And some of you might be thinking, okay, what you just did was was blasphemy. That was sacrilege. I mean, that's prayer. That's kind of my point. Because we have these strange notions of what prayer is and isn't, what it should be and what it shouldn't, and what kind of words to use. And some of you might be thinking, but Steve, I like to use the word beseech thee, and that's okay. If you like to use some of those words I used, I mean, I wrote all this down, and I used the big words, and I spelled them out so I wouldn't forget them. And, and if you use any of those words and they're meaningful to you, that's great. But oftentimes, the words we use... And what we say, it it, it can become meaningless to us, and we are, in a sense, trying to impress somebody. There's a couple somebodies to impress. There's God, and you might be trying to impress God. And by the way, just FYI, just a quick notice, you can't impress him. He's known everybody that's ever lived. He's known some impressive individuals. He made them all. And he knew them in public and he knew them in private and there's not a single person using words that can impress god there's not a single person in how they behave and how they act that can impress that can impress god so we need to lay that to rest but most of the time we might be trying to impress god but really and this is why i hate praying publicly i'll just say that now as a pastor i hate praying publicly it's because it gets weird, doesn't it? 
I mean, the motivation. I'm a sinful person, and I know that. And my wife and kids can really tell you some stories. And I know that I'm a sinful person saved by grace. And so I know that my tendency is going to be to try to sound better and smarter and, and more awesomer than I really am. And you all know that that's a waste of my time, right? Don't you? No? Well, then I'll keep trying. But what is prayer? How do we approach prayer? And and after you hear this message today, I hope you walk out and go, ah, prayer, I know what that's about. I know how to do it somewhat. I don't want you to think, prayer, can't touch that. I don't know how to do that. That's beyond me. And there's a story, there's actually an unlikely example, a woman that I want us to take a look at. And it's really interesting where this story falls because it falls at a very important time in the Bible. It falls at the very beginning of a story that is going to kick off the next 400 years of God's people and their history. 100 chapters of Bible. And it begins with this person. It begins with a prayer. This 400-year period is going to bring in the monarchy, the kingdom of Israel, beginning with Saul and moving on to David. And this 400 years is a period of time where God wants it to be recorded how he interacts with his people for good and for bad and how he interacts with his people, the good and the bad. And he wants us to know who he is through these 100 chapters of Bible. And he wants to begin with a particular story that my guess is none of us would have begun with. He begins in 1 Samuel, chapter 1. If you have your Bible, grab it, and it's towards the beginning. And 1 Samuel, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then there's Joshua Judges Ruth, which is a pretty good album by uh, Lyle Lovett. And uh, then you get to 1 Samuel. And you have 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is, is two books now, First and Second Samuel. But back when it was first written, it was most likely two volumes, but it was four books. It was 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings. And this beginning of the story of the kings, the kings of Israel. And God is going to begin his story of revealing himself to his people. And he begins here and he says, print it. That's good Bible. Uh, Give you enough time to find it. It'll be on the screen, but I love this story. You might have noticed my kid's first name, my firstborn, is Samuel. And I love this story. There was a certain man from Ramath, Ramathaim, something like that, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Toha, the son of Zi, and and E. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Here we have like a Jerry Springer beginning to the story (laughs) that God wants to tell. Remember that show, Jerry Springer? (laughs) All right, this is Elkanah. And Elkanah's got two wives. (laughs) I mean, right there, there's a problem. Elkanah's got two wives. Right, guys? That's a problem. 
Amen. Thank you, Mike. Elkanah's got two wives. Wives, that's a problem, right? That Elkanah's got two wives. The reason he's got two wives is probably because one of them can't have kids. Because Hannah can't have children. That's perhaps his first wife. It doesn't tell us, but reading between the lines, it's very possible that he married Hannah, and when they found that she couldn't have kids, he got married to another gal who could. And there's this problem on top of the problem. The problem is he's got two wives, and the problem on top of the problem is that there's one that's overly fertile. She has a kid after kid after kid after kid after kid. And there's one that's barren. If you know anything about 1100 BC, a woman's value was tied up nearly completely, totally, in their ability to have children. And so Peninnah is very valuable, and Hannah is not so much in this culture at this time. This is where God wants to start his story, his 400 years of history his 100 chapters. He wants to begin his story here. And, and look where these people are from. They're from Ephraim. They're from, they're from Ray. It's not a prominent place, not a prominent city, at least not at this point. It's just kind of a, a, a backwoods, hill country kind of a place. These are hicks, our kind of people, right? These are good folks. They're folks of the land. They're, they're not highfalutin. They're good country folks. And God wants to begin with them, not with a king and not with a priest and not with a prophet and not at a temple, not at a palace. He wants to begin with some country folk from the hill country. And this is how he wants to begin his 400-year history, recorded in 100 chapters, and that's good Bible. We keep reading. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. And whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And as soon as we read about this woman's barrenness, don't you get roped into the story? Doesn't it just bring you into the story? Because all of a sudden, this is a story about longing, about pain, about suffering. This is a real story. We can enter into this. We can feel this. And somehow, when they were off at home in the hill country of Ephraim, it wasn't as painful uh, somehow, Hannah was able to com- com- compartmentalize. She maybe had her own little hut, her own place, her own space, and she could go there, and she could spend her time there. And, and perhaps maybe Peninnah and the kids, they were off in the distance, and yeah, she always heard them carrying on and everything else, but at least they were a little bit out of sight, out of mind. And maybe when they were off in Ephraim, she just had more of her husband's attention because it says he loved her, that Elkanah 
loved her. And for some reason, it just didn't feel as, the wound didn't feel as open at home. But once a year, when they traveled to Shiloh, where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant was, where they would go once a year to offer sacrifice, and this wasn't a sin offering, this was a thanksgiving offering, this was a thanks offering. And and you can imagine just how the emotions that must have brought up for her. This is a thank offering to the Lord, and what does she, a barren woman in 1100 BC, where her whole value as a woman is tied up in the kids she can bear, what does she have to be thankful for? And on top of that, children are from the Lord, because the text told us the Lord had closed her womb. And what does she have to thank God for? And on top of that, her rival, the text says, Peninnah likes to rub it in. I've got children, you don't. You can hear the sing-songy harassment of Peninnah. And they would make their way on the road uh, from their home in the hill country to Shiloh. And they would travel there once a year. And on that road, she would not be able to escape Peninnah and the children. It was just a reminder of her longing, of what was missing. They would get to the tabernacle and she couldn't avoid the crowds. Because this is a This was a a celebration where all the Jewish people would come from all over the land of Israel. They would show up to offer their thank offering. And she couldn't escape the questions. So, Hannah, so good to see you at sacrifice this year. How many of these are yours? When she looked down and wiped a tear and the person realized that Unknowingly, they they touched a nerve, unwittingly. And they'd say, oh, Hannah, so sorry. And she could not escape the crowds. And it was at that time where the, the weeping and the crying were at their height. It wasn't when she was at home and she could escape. It was when she was in a crowd and she was all alone. And her poor husband, bless his heart, he loved her. But he didn't know what to do. I mean, look what the Bible even said, right? Uh, hey, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating and celebrating? You got me? You should be like the happiest gal around. I'm worth more than ten sons, right? Bless his heart. He loves her. He means well. He's trying. He hasn't learned that sometimes the best thing to do is just to hug her and let her cry. I'm still trying to learn that sometimes. Hannah has this pain and this longing. And this is where God wants to start the story. And look what goes on next. Once when they had finished eating, verse 9, and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give 
him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. You know, this isn't a prayer of a spiritual giant. In fact, this past week, I was listening to the Christian radio station, and some guy came on, and he's like, have you ever bargained with God? You shouldn't do that. And here I am studying this text all week long. And Hannah, in the Bible, which God printed, said that's good Bible, is bargaining with God in her prayer. This isn't a prayer that's going to win any awards. It's not going to win any competitions. There's not going to be many points awarded for this prayer. It's not a prayer that's praying for other people. Oh, God, help Elkanah not be such a bozo and help him be more sensitive to me. Oh, Lord, help Peninnah not to be so mean and mean-spirited to me. Oh, Lord, help the people around me to just be kinder and gentler and nicer. Lord, if this is your will, help me to accept it and just be okay with it. No, it's none of those prayers. This is a foxhole prayer with a desperate person bargaining with God. If you'll give me a son, I'll give him to you. That's what the end of it says, where it says no razor will touch his head. And what she's saying is she's invoking the Nazarite vow. And you've already met one earlier if you've gone to Sunday school. His name was Samson. Looked like an accountant with long hair. (laughs) Because if he was some burly muscle man, nobody would have messed with the guy. Just kidding about the accountants. Um, (laughs) I'm getting so much trouble. <laughs> he had long hair, and the strength of his body came from his hair, not from his muscles. That's in the Bible. It says that. And you've met a Nazarite, and the Nazarites would take a vow. They would take a vow demonstrating how, how, how spiritual they were. Dave's in the middle of a Nazarite vow right now. He does not want any razor to hit his head. And the Nazarite vow would be for 30 or 60 or 90 days. And if you got really spiritual and you want really people to know, wow, you're really serious about your vows to God, maybe you'd go for a year without cutting your hair. And you'd also stay away from grapes. You'd stay away from wine because that was always a a picture of celebration, of joy. And so a Nazarite would never participate with drinking alcohol, with drinking wine. They'd stay away from it. And they do that for 30, 60, 90 days, or if you're really, really spiritual, a year. And they'd also stay away from dead bodies. That means if grandma died, they couldn't go to the funeral during that 30, 60, 90-day period or that year-long period because death meant sin. And it was a reminder of sin. And a Nazarite could have nothing to do with sin. They were separated during this time. And here Hannah says, give me a son. And I won't give him to you for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or a year. I'll give him back to you. A razor will never touch his head. And just as you think things are going to get better, in walks the pastor. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. (laughs) That'd be a weird prayer meeting. (sighs) 
If you keep reading this story, you're going to find out that this was a problem in Israel, that there was corruption in the land of Israel. We're just coming out of the story of the judges and the time of the judges. And there is all sorts of problem. There's spiritual deadness in Israel. And it's even in the priesthood. Even Eli is not quite as attentive to the things of God as he should be. And here he sees this woman praying and he thinks, ah, she's drunk. She's celebrated a little too much with the celebration because this has been happening a lot recently. And he goes to her and he says, hey, lady, lay off the sauce. We're kicking you out. Shoo. Loving words from her husband and loving words from her pastor. How many of you have been there before? I mean, maybe not literally, <laughs> drunk at church. Or... But how many of you have been in that place where nobody knows how to respond to what you're going through? Where the pain is so deep that words are so shallow that everything somebody says to you, it's just, just kind of grates on your nerves. That nobody can quite enter into the longing, to the pain, to the sorrow, to the disappointment, to the confusion you feel. That everywhere you go, even when you show up at church, it feels like everybody's just wanting to smile and pat you on the back and I'll pray for you and you kind of get shoved out the door. I mean, everywhere you go, spiritually, there's just a disconnect and it feels like God doesn't even hear when you pray. How many of you have been there? And there's no, there's no one. There's nobody there. There's nobody. The, the people who should be your friends, your allies, the ones that should support you are just gone. Or maybe they're like Elkanah they're trying. They just can't get her done. Have you been there? This is where God wants to begin the 400-year history of his people. This is where God wants to begin the 100 chapters of telling us about himself and who he is. This is where this gets kicked off, this story. It's not a king. It's not a warrior. It's not a priest. It's not a prophet. It's a backwoods woman who's barren and has a domestic issue. That's where God wants to start the story of himself. Eli answered, probably a little embarrassed. Oh, excuse me, I jumped. I'm embarrassed now. (laughs) Verse 15, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. And you might want to underline this or highlight this or circle this if you do that in your Bible. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, probably a bit embarrassed, right? (laughs) Like I was just a moment ago. Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. It's like when Eli realized what was going on. When he realized that 
She was praying. She wasn't drunk. She was pouring out her soul to the Lord. That this was as pure of a prayer as you could get. That this was a woman who was praying silently. It wasn't for anybody's benefit. It wasn't to impress anybody. It wasn't to get Eli to go, yes, be blessed and be well fed and enjoy your life. It wasn't to invoke any response from anybody. It was just to cry out to God. This is where God wants to start the story of him. This is the place he begins. The 400-year story told to us in 100 chapters with a woman who is not even a good prayer pouring out her soul to the Lord. Well, what happens? I guess we got to keep reading. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. And in the PG-13 verse, Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. That's why our Samuel is named Samuel. Because we went through a period of barrenness. We cried out to God, and he heard us. He hurt us again. And I don't think I don't think we prayed the third time. But we've been praying ever since. <laughs> Love you, Dave. Is Dave even here? I don't know. That poor child. He answers and he gives her a son and she names him Samuel and she goes and he, she takes Samuel back to the tabernacle and once he's weaned, they take him back to the tabernacle and they drop him off and they say, Eli, he's gonna live with you because God gave us Samuel and Samuel, I am giving back to God because I said I would during my foxhole prayer when I asked for this kid, when I bargained with God and Samuel lived in the tabernacle and Samuel was that young boy, that story that you heard in Sunday school where the little boy who heard heard God's voice in the middle of the night and he thought it was the old man and he got up three times and he went and he talked to the old man the old man finally figured out maybe God's talking to you and he woke up and he said speak Lord for your servant is listening and it says in the text the word of the Lord came and stood spoke to Samuel I believe that the incarnate Jesus Christ came and stood before Samuel and spoke to him And it was through Samuel that Israel started to hear the voice of God again. And it was through Samuel in chapter 7 that they got rid of the idols that were all over Israel. They burnt them. They tore them down. They cut them off. They turned back to Yahweh, their one God. And it wasn't good enough for the people. They said, we want a king. And Samuel said, no, you don't want a king. God told me you don't want a king. And the people said, nice speech, Samuel. We want a king. Samuel went and he prayed, and he says, all right, God's going to give you a king, but you're not going to like the king. And he anointed Saul. And Saul didn't turn out to be a very good king. And a few months into his reign, God turned his back on Saul, and Samuel went and anointed David. And it wasn't for several decades until Saul was removed from the kingship, and David was installed as king. 
and this whole movement of God's working, bringing about Saul and the kingdom and the kingship, bringing about David and the kingdom of David and the throne of David. And you know a lot of stuff about David because God made promises to David that there would always be a king on the throne of David. And there were these messianic, these promises about a coming savior, a coming Messiah who would rule and reign as David. And it all began. It all found its genesis. It all found its beginning with a backwoods woman who poured out her soul to the Lord in the tabernacle, bargaining with God. Give me a son, and I'll give him back. I wonder if there's anything we can learn from this today. You may remember in my uh, sermon that I brought for you last week, uh, my professor said I was really bad at application. I was bad at applying stuff to people's lives. And I partly think, you know, if the story's compelling enough, how much application do you really need from me? Do you really need a lot of help figuring out what this is speaking to us? You're smart, folks. Maybe I'm just smarter than my professor. <laughs> Love you, Scott, in case you're listening. Obviously, the way to pray is to pour out your soul to the Lord. That's it. I mean, when somebody calls me and says, hey, man, how do I pray? When somebody stops me and says, hey, I don't know how to pray. I'm following the prayer guide. I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure what to do. Pour out your heart to God. What is in there? What are those places that you're lonely, that you're confused, that you quite, aren't quite sure what to do next, that you have no idea what is going on? And it'd be helpful to get some wisdom or insight or intervention. Pour out your heart to God. Pour out your soul to the Lord. Because this is where God began the story. What stories might he want to begin with us? What stories might he want to begin in Ray? in Yuma County, in Colorado. He's used backwoods people before. And we don't have a lot of woods around here, but we're country folk. We're flyover country. We're places that city folks come and they look at great expanses of nothingness. And they think, who would want to live there? They think, what could come out of there that would be meaningful and helpful and change anything and do anything? And it's a place like that that God starts his story. It's a place like Ray that God starts his story of 400 years, 100 chapters of how he is going to deal with people forever. And perhaps more than that, I'm sure you and I play a role in this. We get to participate like Hannah did. We get to participate in God's unfolding story. And you and I get to participate in making Christ known.
We get to participate like Samuel, who got to experience Jesus one-on-one, like we do. We get to sit in his presence and pour out our souls. May God do something great like he's always done in the past through simple, ordinary folks like us. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Moms, pour out your souls to the Lord. Women who want to be moms, pour out your soul to the Lord. All of us, pour out our soul to the Lord. He will do great things. Amen.